Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Redemption Hill podcast. We are a community of people learning the way of Jesus to bless our city of Boise, Idaho, and beyond. Redemption Hill is a unique place. We are a collective of micro churches that do life together throughout the week and gather on Sundays to grow, worship, and celebrate what God is doing in our city. You are invited to join us Sundays at 9 a.m. at Discovery Church in Boise, where you can find the community you need in any season of your life. More details can be found at redemptionboise.org. Up next is the teaching segment from this week's Sunday Gathering. Afterwards, stay tuned for more information on how to get connected at Redemption Hill. All right. We're back. I have no idea when the countdown ended, but I got my coffee, so we're, we're here. We're back. We are in our second week of our new sermon series we're calling The Gospel According to Jesus. Um, we figure he should be the source for how we um, build our faith. If he's the center of our faith, we should ask, what does he say? What does he do? How do we shape every part of our life, every part of our shared life as a family on mission here together around the person of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus? And the gospel is one of those terms that feels so familiar, but then when we get down to it, everybody means something different by the words. When we say the gospel, we all have something in our head that relates to something we've heard, or maybe there's like a jumble of things that we've heard that we kind of like all lump in together. But our work together in this sermon series is to really tease out what did the gospel mean to the earliest followers of Jesus and what, what was the gospel that Jesus himself preached? Because he preached a gospel that is many times different than what we hear today. And that should give us pause in what we do and what we say. So, um, but before we jump in, we're kind of, we're on the second part of our introduction. I'm, we're going to be working through some long passages. And um, I'm trying to do this thing where I end relatively on time for the foreseeable future. And so basically, I'm going to get through some, and then it's going to be like 10.05, and we're just going to shut it down and bring it, come back next week. And so if you want to hear what's next, you'll just have to show up. We'll have a cliffhanger every week just to make sure that, you know, you tune in to the next installment of our um, series. Uh, yeah, so, so here we are. You mind if we, we, if we pray before we jump in? Oh, Lord God. Your word is different than every other word. It's set apart as this. It's not a set of laws, and it's not a set of stories, and it's not just a bunch of songs, but it's this, this tapestry of how you have made a life with humanity, how you have joined into our story and are bringing life by, by this work of gospel. And so we pray that as we hear it, that it transforms the way we see ourselves and the way we live in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, I wanted to I want to start off by, we're doing a little bit of a, of a side-by-side vision series because I'm, we're, we're trying to help you get some clear language around who we are and what we do. Um, last week, we talked a little bit about this network of microchurch that we've been talking about. And what we've, what we've tried to give you a sense of is that um, each microchurch 
is not micro because it's small, but is micro because it's simple. Okay, it is the um, the lowest, most irreducible element of the people of God. So there's all these different ways we can formulate ourselves as groups of people, but the simplest expression of the people of God is what we call micro church, which has three distinct parts. It has a group of people who gather around God and look to him and allow him to shape our community. We call that up or worship. The second piece is formation or discipleship, where we are, we're being shaped and formed in community as we learn the way of Jesus. And the third piece is mission. We have, we have been sent. God has a sent people that he has called out of the world to be a part of what he's up to, and we are sent on mission together to be his people in new places. Okay, And so when we talk about what it means to be microchurch, we're talking about the, the simplest, most irreducible thing. Um, and what we have, we, we have a little different vision um, of what we're doing because it's not about what happens in this room. This room is a special place where God does some things, but we think that mobilization for you to go is important. And what's happened in our community is that we started with... Um, what was, I think there was like 60 of us when we launched this thing six years ago, and that was like our, our launch team. And it was like one big family on mission together. We had a mission, it was the, the focused on the West Bench of our city, and we worked together to reach families in that area of the city, and we taught each other the way of Jesus, and we worshiped together in that funny smelling gym that God had entrusted to us for Sunday mornings. And it was like we were just one big family on mission. And what's happened is um, there's too many people for us to even live life together now. Like in, in our community, there's about 210, 225 people over the course of a month who are a part of our community in some of our micro churches or a part of our, our key missions. And um, I know most of you because I have to pay attention and I love connecting, but some of you are like, I've been here for six years and there's a bunch of people around that I don't know. And that's okay, actually. We want you to be friendly and what we say is if you've been here three weeks, you're on the welcome team because we want you to be caring for one another in this space and on Sundays. Um, but it's too large to do life together. Um, there's, there's some social theory around the types of groups that we live in and what we need and different social spaces that we live in. And we, we all need that tight knit group of people that we do life with really, I mean, the, in a sense, we've, we've kind of dumbed it down into the nuclear family. Um, but this, this group of people that we actually live with, that we share resources with, that we share a household with. And then we have kind of our extended family, the people that we do life with regularly, the people that we eat meals with, the people that we go to things for, our ride or die friends, the people that are really family, you know, that kind of that tight knit group of people. And many of you in this room are that for me. And we have done life together. And that's that kind of the element that we call micro church is meant to live in that social space. It's really important. But we can't all do that because even even my micro church, like when we try to gather together, um, last Sunday a bunch of us just like happened to have brunch together at somebody's house, and like our kids were running in and out of the Allen's like house, and we were all on the back porch. And if we added 
like even a couple more families, it would have been um, unwieldy in that in that space. And that's there's just kind of a limit to that. But then beyond that, you have what we call like our, our larger gathering, which is Sundays. And that's okay, but you can't you can't do life together. Yeah, I can't know all your stories. It takes me about three months of focused, intentional work to connect with each of you and hear what's happening in your life. And I want that. I want to know each and every one of you, but ultimately I, I can't do that for all of you as much as I love you. And when things go wrong in your life, I can't be the only person in your life. And that's like historically what, what churches would do is they would hire somebody to be the person who had a really hard life so that everybody else could have it easy. And it would be like a hundred to one kind of ratio where you had a pastor or something who would be the one that took care of everything and did everything that everybody else was supposed to be doing, including like when people got sick, then the pastor had to come to the hospital to pray for them because that's the only person who could pray for them, who had the, the special holy sauce that they get from Jesus and they could give it out and like heal people. That's, that was kind of like the way people thought was it's like this one person, this many. I'm going to be honest, that's a pretty, pretty terrible system. And it makes for that one person's life, it's pretty hard to be that for everybody. And it means that you actually don't get care because we need more people in our lives. And so that's why we have microchurch. It's that place where you're going to be cared for. You're going to be known. Um, you're actually going to live with people and do life with people so that when they challenge you and they look into your eyes and say, hey, are you doing okay? I noticed this, and it seems pretty messed up. Are you okay? And then when they look in your eyes, you don't see condemnation. You don't see criticism. You see love, and you see space to be known and seen. That's where powerful breakthrough happens in our souls. People who know us and love us can speak into broken and hurting places. And so that's why we do what we do with microchurch. Um, and as, as family on mission in that microchurch space, um, we, we believe in a team leadership kind of approach. Uh, because we, we think that it shouldn't fall on any one person to do everything. And so we want to create teams of people who are doing it together. Uh, we really want to get away from like drama and nonsense and theological battles. Like nobody needs that. Nobody wants that. When we're in our microchurch space, that's meant to be a space where we're caring for and knowing one another. And so it's meant to be just like a sweet space. Now there's going to be issues because you're a person and I'm a person and we got we got issues, right? But like, we don't need extra issues. So you can bring your issues. Don't bring other people's issues. Just bring your issues in and we'll, we'll deal with our issues together. Does that sound good? All right. Um, and, and what we're really trying to do in these microchurch spaces is this. Our, this is our key mission as a community. We are trying to become good news or gospel people. We are, we are trying to take what we've learned from God and have our lives so shaped by his presence that where we go, we bring with us the literal presence of God through his Holy Spirit inside of us. And so our neighbors and our friends and our, our workplaces experience God by our literal presence with them. And when we're together in a place it's even multiplied. Um, Joe and I, we live in the same neighborhood. Our kids go to the same school. And on Friday night, we had 
a, uh, a carnival. Um, it's a school carnival for our elementary school, which like the kids, the kids lost their mind over this thing. And it's literally like a beanbag toss and face painting. It's so lame, but they were just like so stoked about this funny little school carnival. But what happened, like what I noticed and what J Joe was talking with one of our friends is that there's a bunch of people who don't know if we're family or not. They just kind of assumed we belong together. And it's kind of, it's, we call it kind of like the Wonder School crew. Like we, our kids go to school together. We have meals together. We care for one another. Sometimes we have dads over on my back porch for whiskey, which, you know, is really sweet times. But it's like, it's th those lines of, of family and friend is so, is so blended and what well, one of our friends said is that she, they feel like they're, they're not a part of this like spiritual thing, but they're borrowing our community because they need it. And I go, yeah, that's, that's exactly what we're trying to do, is give away a taste of the kingdom of God by living out the community values that we're called to. And so we're good news people who are growing. We're not, we're not there yet. We all are broken, and we have to grow into the wisdom of God. We all live as servants where we start first by putting ourselves underneath one another and caring for one another. Um, we value humility as one of our highest virtues because that's where community happens is when we say, I don't have everything I need and you don't have everything you need and we need one another. We are interdependent. And humility is required for us to lean in and trust that God is gonna give us what we need through one another. And lastly, and this is maybe one of the hardest things, is we are gospel people by being truth tellers. We look at the world around us and we say, this is not right, and this is not the way that it was meant to be, but there is a way to find life in the midst of it. And so we're not without hope. We are people who tell the truth and say, there is hope for this broken world, and God is at work in it. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about this network of microchurch. Simple, organic transformational, decentralized kind of network of people who are living as family on mission. So I'm just going to keep talking about it till you get it. So as soon as you know, you tell me that you get it, then we'll, we'll, we'll stop talking about what we are and what we're doing. But are we good? Are we good for today? Is that enough? All right. Okay. So why are we talking about the gospel? I've got 16 minutes. Let's go. Why are we talking about the gospel? First is we are story people. As human beings, the way that our brains are wired is that we take a series of events and we turn them into stories without ever thinking about it. It's just what humans do because we are what one sociologist called, we are meaning-making creatures. We can't help but look at the disparate events around us and organize them into narratives to help us make sense of what's happening around us. We are story people. and our story will shape who we are and how we live. And so the stories that we tell are really important. It's, it's not like a choose-your-own-adventure type of thing where we can create whatever narrative we want and it'll bring us to the place where we're going to experience life and fulfillment and fruitfulness. There's a bunch of really toxic narratives in our world that we're all swimming in all the time. Actually, social media is just a thousand little stories reinforcing one big narrative. And that big narrative in our culture is nothing matters, do what you want, find a little bit of pleasure as you're on your way to die. 
That's the story of our world. Is that a good story? No, it's a super lame story. But our world is just trying to make sense of the pain and suffering that we have. And so we run away from pain by embracing pleasure or embracing escape. And we try to make meaning through it. And what we found is that it doesn't bring life. But the stories that we have are going to shape who we are. Um, I was thinking about, you guys have, the, the story that I remember this being told through is not the um, classic novel, but the Mickey Mouse version of the, the Prince and the Pauper. Everybody see that? Like these identical human beings who are so closely, they look so similar that when they realize they look similar, they decide to trade places. One is a prince and one is this, this poor boy. And the prince wants to be released from his official duties and the prison that is the castle. And the poor boy wants to gain access to the sort of wealth and comfort that comes from it. But what they find is that they are the same person. And the only thing that has changed is the narrative around which they have grown up in. One grew up with this belief that he belonged among royalty, that he was the son of the king who had all things at his fingertips and was responsible for this great kingdom and must grow up into someone who could then take the mantle of the crown. And there was this little boy who grew up poor and his narrative was, I have to do whatever it takes to survive. And I have, I'm on my own and there's no one who's going to help me. And so I've got to find a way to make it in this dark, lonely, broken world. The narrative that we live with transforms the way that we live. And so when we're speaking out the gospel, it's, an ins- it's a really important spiritual formation that we need to learn to practice is to speak the gospel out loud, to speak it to one another, and to speak it to a lost world. But we've got to get the story right. I'm not saying we, gotta, we have to do it just right. I'm saying we've got to get at least the broad strokes in the right places so that we don't miss out on it. Because the world is, I don't know if you've seen this, but we're in the midst of a, I mean, a, a pandemic of discouragement. Everyone in my life looks at the world around them and says, I don't know how to make my life work in the midst of what's happening. Um, we, we literally live in a time where you're going to live longer and healthier and more productive and wealthier lives than any humans on the planet ever have. And yet the narrative that we're living in is it's all meaningless. There's so much suffering in the world. This is just an awful experience. Like, do you feel the disconnect between the reality of just, just 20 years ago, we would have had almost 20 million people die around the world from lack of food. And that doesn't happen today. I mean, we're talking like famines have been transformed. Even in the midst of what's happening in Ukraine and Russia, the famines that they thought would happen are not happening because we have solved some of the world's most treacherous problems. You look at disease across the world, we have less disease than we ever have. And yet our suicide rate is higher than it's ever been across all Western countries. That feels crazy, right? We're literally living in a moment of extreme wealth and happiness and at the same time, extreme brokenness. 
the world is aching right now for good news and narratives that will bring encouragement and hope. And when we share the good news according to Jesus, we're building a framework to build a life on. And so this story is not, not just a nice story to build, to build a happy life on, but this story itself will save lives because it builds something that they can build a trellisable life upon. The story shares explicitly that God himself, the maker of heaven and earth, understands my pain. That God understands the oppression in this world. And the gospel says that he is doing something about it. This is the hopelessness of the world, is that the brokenness that we experience, there's no way doing anything about it. But you have hope because someone lives and understands what you've gone through. Someone's doing something about the pain and oppression and brokenness of this world. And that I have a place to contribute and to bring my own life to bear on the work of, of justice, of setting this world right in the way it was meant to be. So let's look back. Um, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to, let's see, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Um, in Hebrew, the word good news is basora, um, basora. And here's, here's one, one of the places where it shows up in, in Isaiah, because we've got we to gotta pull back. Because when Jesus shows up and says, I have good news, he's not just bringing good news in a vacuum. He's bringing good news to a particular people so that they will see what God is doing. It's, it's centered in history. It's actually happening to them. So in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintops. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power, and he will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. You see, this is about 600 years before Christ. And Isaiah is saying that there is good news. But the good news is not the death, burial, resurrection, and second coming of Jesus. What is the good news? It's the same good news that Jesus preached. The messenger of good news is shouting from the mountaintops, tell the towns of Judah what? Your God is coming. That God himself is coming to set things right, to reign on Mount Zion. The king is coming. This is the good news. We talked a little bit at last, about it last week, but that was one of the main ways that... Um, they used the term good news was to speak about a military a moment where they were waiting to find out if the battle had been won. And the, the good news bringer, the one who brings the good news, the evangelist, would come and would proclaim that the battle had been won. This is the good news, is that God himself is coming and he's going to set things right. Same thing in Isaiah 52. This is what the sovereign Lord says in verse 4. Long ago, my people chose to leave, live in Egypt, and now they're oppressed by Syria. What is this? asked the Lord. Why are my people enslaved again? Those who rule them shout in exultation. 
my name is blasphemed all day long, but I will reveal my name to my people and they will come to know its power. Then at last they will recognize that I am the one who speaks to them. So Jesus, the, the Lord is speaking over Israel saying that you're back, you're back in Assyrian oppression, but I'm still coming. And then Isaiah says this, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of that messenger who brings the good news that the Lord is coming. The good news of peace and salvation, shalom. The good news that the God of Israel himself reigns over creation. The watchmen shout and sing with joy, for before their very eyes they see the Lord returning to Jerusalem. Let the ruins of Jerusalem break into joyful song, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. This is the center of the good news, is that God himself is coming in power. The kingdom is coming. That was the message from the Old Testament. Now, uh, we have borrowed forward um, this word gospel from old languages, but um, we want to look right before Jesus was born in the ancient Greek world, um, that uangalia, it means that good news teller. It means not just the news, but a sacrifice that was offered for good tidings or good news. This was the, the main usage in Greek at the time that Jesus was was on earth was that good news meant when that when that uh, when that evangelist shows up that good news bringer they show up what did they do they gave a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God and then they had a barbecue of celebration you guys know this right like when they offered these sacrifices they would burn the meat on an open roasting pit and then they would eat the meat as a celebration this is what it meant in their time was to offer a gift of thanksgiving. Uh, animal sacrifice, offerings of food and drink, ritual dedication. So this news of the military victory, it was celebrated with this gospel offering. Um, in, in, there's a play from Aristophanes in 424 BC, and there's this humorous character, Paphlagone, my, my ancient Greek is rough, but Paphlagone, he proposes an excessive sacrifice of a hundred heifers to Athena to celebrate good news. And so this word in Greek kind of has a double meaning. The singular means a reward paid to a human messenger who brings good news. So when they come and they bring the good news, you pay them a tip because they brought the good news, okay? And the second form of the meaning is that it's an offering to God for good news, this offering of thanksgiving. And then the Roman imperial cult that was invented literally years, four or five years before Jesus was born, was they, they took that word euangelion and they, they, they stole it and they used it and started to celebrate the gospel of the august one of the, the divine Augustus, this mythologized version of the first Roman emperor, Octavian, also known as Augustus Caesar, Julius or Julian's um, nephew, uh, well, kind of, kind of adopted nephew. And Augustus was, was born, they say, both a man and a god, a savior who has made war to cease and shall put everything in peaceful order. You see, this, this is what gospel meant in the first century, especially in any of the Roman colonies. When they talked about gospel, the good news was that Augustus showed up 
and he has subjugated you as his people, and now you will experience the Pax Romana. You'll be given freedom from all of that worry of governing yourself. It's just so much work to govern yourself. Augustus took on himself the cost of the burden of governing yourself, and he gave you the peace that comes that only Rome can give. And as brutal as it was, there was basically, uh, you know, almost 300 years with very little bloodshed or war on one of the largest stretches in the history of humankind from this Pax Romana. And to celebrate the good tidings of peace, and uh, they, would have, they would have actually an advent where the, they would bring in a celebration in a town like Ephesus that was the, the main hub of Asia Minor. And they would, they would have these major celebrations and a ritual dedication. And they would, as, as Augustus would take over different areas, they would change their calendars. And, and they would start to take on the, what we call our Julian calendar, which is why all of the names of our months are named after Roman gods. It's still our calendar, as much as the years are based on the life of Jesus, miscalculated. <laughs> Our months are named after these Roman emperors because Augustus brought his peace to the world through the bloodshed of the Roman Empire. And this dedication to the, the August one, it served to synchronize these diverse calendars, and they, they used it as a way, like we, we have this um, from literally four years before Jesus, we have this inscription of Priene, and the Greek word for good news appears in celebrating the God and the birth of the Savior. This is the language of the Savior, Augustus. So when we're talking about good news, we're talking about competing versions of good news that have to be understood. And even our word gospel actually doesn't mean good news. Did you know that? The, the etymology of the word gospel, it comes from God's spell, and it literally means the story of God. And so when we talk about gospel, we're not creating this word that means good news. We're talking about li the literal story of God is good news to the world. And we talked a little bit last week, but uh, when we talk about um, what the gospel is, there's lots of misconceptions about how to talk about it. And when we talk about gospel, all, when we had a little survey in here, what, what did we say the gospel was? It was mostly the way that we formulate these little, honestly, like little packets of information. We kind of break it down into three or four or six points, and we put it into an Evangel cube or a Four Spiritual Laws or like a, I mean, a, a little bracelet with colors on There's all sorts of different ways that we have talked about the gospel as these, these little uh, information packets that are strung together. But a lot of times they aren't given their fullness because they're not told as a narrative or a story. Because the gospel is not the story of how to be saved. It's not the story of how to have life. It's not the story of the plan of salvation, of how to receive eternal life. And it's not the language that we use as a method of persuasion. The good news, according to Jesus, is the story of all creation from beginning to end and the key ways that God is taking the broken world that we have inherited and turning it into the kingdom of God on earth.
It's the proclamation that the kingdom of God is coming. And the invitation is to join in with the work that God is doing, to enjoy and to become the kind of people who belong in God's kingdom. It's the story of Jesus. It's the story of Israel. It's the story of, Bible, of the Bible itself. And it's the story of Jesus as the resolution of Israel's story. But it's 10.08, so we're going to finish up today. And next week, we're going to talk some more about uh, the very first formulation of the gospel from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you want to read ahead and do your homework, um, I, I expect some preparation for you next week. It'll be uh, actually in two weeks. Um, Andrew's going to preach a kind of a standalone sermon next week, but in two weeks, we're going to do that. So I'm going to invite the, the band to come forward. And I have, uh, it's a special communion. Uh, you probably don't know this because uh, I didn't know this, uh, but it is, today is the celebration of World Communion Day. And, and it's, it's a moment where we recognize that everybody who gathers around this table, everybody who receives these elements by faith belongs to one church. Have you guys noticed that I don't pluralize the word microchurch? It's kind of weird, right? Like I don't, I don't say microchurch with an ES at the end. Anybody notice that that's kind of weird? There's a reason for that. There is only one church in the world. It's all those who belong to Jesus are a part of his gathered people who are a part of his family. And so today we're going to take communion, and actually this bread right here, um, our friends at Resurrection Covenant Church, which is one of the church plants that we supported the last couple years, they prepared this bread for us as a symbol of our shared life together that we belong to one family and one church, even though we meet in tens of thousands of locations around our country. This is a symbol of the oneness of God's people. When we gather around the table and when we receive the elements, this is the same body that was broken for you and for me and for them. And this is the same blood that was shed for you and for me and for them so that we might be united as God's people. Now, we look different, we sound different, we have different ways of worshiping, we have different ways of even interpreting Scripture, but the thing that unites us is the actual person of Christ. And so would you stand with me? I'm going to pray over the, the elements, and then I want, I'd like you to come forward, receive the elements, take them back to your seat, and then we are all going to take them together, okay? So don't take the elements until we all take them together. Holy Father, this bread is a symbol a symbol and a space for us to remember every week this story, this old, old story of God making a way for his people through his own life and through his own sacrifice. And so as we come forward to receive these elements, we want to praise you and thank you that we are not left alone to our own devices, but that the world is being transformed as we allow you and as we give you space as king over all of us, that's becoming the king over all creation, as we await that glorious day of the second coming, Lord God, may we receive this gladly and say that we are kingdom people because of the work that you've done, not the work that we do. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. 
You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at Redemption Boise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.